You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where... Each week, we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome, with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity about systematic trend following as an investment strategy, enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Jerry, which some of you have called an all-time classic that will be listened to and learned from many years from now. And for those of you who don't know why, it's because I surprised Jerry last week by asking him to take the original turtle entrance exam that Richard Dennis gave all the participants, uh, or the applicants, I should say, before selecting the two turtle classes back in the mid-1980s. An exam that all of you can take, by the way, of course, at our friend's Andrew's website, 40 in, 20 out. Let me also quickly give a shout out to all of those uh, who took a few minutes out of your time this week to leave a rating and review. I noticed some great ones from Mediodocs from Sweden, Ben from the UK and Dushok from the US, just to name a few. But you should know that I read all of them and I post many of them on the uh, website. And I'm very grateful for the help that you are providing the podcast in order to continue to grow. Moritz, fantastic to be back with you this week. How have you digested the German election? How are you doing today? Yeah, uh, doing okay. And by the way, um, apologies for my darker than usual voice. I caught a terrible cold and I have a cough that is nagging me since a few days. Uh, coming back from a conference in London. I'm not sure where I got it. But anyways, I I hope I'll get through that podcast. <laughs> um, but other than that, um, I'm doing really good. Uh, it's a nice fall day here in the south of Munich. Um, German elections, well, what do you want me to say? They are uh, they're now looking to form a coalition between uh, the Social Democrats, the Liberals, and the Greens. Uh, that seems to be underway, uh, even though the ink on that coalition paper has not dried yet. So let's see. It's probably going to take a, a few more weeks before they have that sorted out. Absolutely interesting uh, stuff. And uh, yes, I'm sure with politics, it'll probably take a little while before they can all agree on on their joint policies, uh, for sure. Now, just in terms of a short-ish market wrap, I mean, there was actually quite a lot to analyze this week with inflation coming in higher than expected and retail sales surprising to the upside. But equities, once again, pulled themselves off the mat and a Appear poised to have at least a few more rounds with greedy and fearful investors. Less obvious but quite telling is the yield curve flattening that also took place this week. The spread between the two-year note and the 30-year bond has flattened by 18 basis points since last Friday. That's a meaningful move and hints that investors are starting to position for a sooner-than-advertised interest rate hike. Indeed, another favorite Fed funds indicator, the Eurodollar futures, has experienced a big move this month and now is indicating that Fed funds will be 37 basis points higher by the end of next year. Also, we see the two-year notes have become a lot cheaper 
and are trading at a yield not just uh, uh, pretty close to 0.4 of a percent. That's much more attractive than the 0.15% offered only a few months ago. But if Fed funds are going to be at that level next fall, the two-year yield will need to rise higher still to compensate investors for holding it. Then we had the minutes of the September FOMC meeting. They were released this week. And uh, deep down on page nine of the document, um, there were some suggested details of the tapering of uh, open market buying. The taper amount put forth uh, was $10 billion a month for treasury securities and $5 billion a month for agency mortgage-backed securities. At that pace, open market purchases would end later next summer. The minutes did not offer a start date for the taper, but it's likely to begin before the end of the year. Ideally, they will begin in November simply because there is a real risk that it should have commenced months ago. And finally, retirees can look forward to a bump of 5.9% in their monthly social checks, which is the largest increase in 39 years. And of course, that is not transitory. That's a permanent increase in the cost of the commitment to that program. And speaking about sticky versus flexible CPI measures, Sticky CPI just broke out of a 13-year high, or broke out to a 13-year high, I should say, to 2.8%, while flexible CPI has risen over 13%, or to over 13%, a level not seen since the early Volcker years, reflecting a very rapid increase in energy cost, and also some of the more idiosyncratic measures such as used car prices and airfares. Moritz, maybe we will dig into some of the inflation stuff later, I don't know, but I'm excited to hear what's been going on in uh, your portfolios uh, or portfolio and sort of what you've been keeping an eye on since we were last on. Yeah, luckily the portfolio has been, like you said, inflating a bit uh, in recent weeks and months. I'm actually having a pretty good year, to be honest. I'm now up 35% in my systematic trading program. Let me have a look at the numbers here. October is about 3% up year to date. I finished September up 4%. And I only really had two losing months this year. Uh, those were the month of May and June, but all the other months were were nicely positive. So, so this is a really good trading environment for me. I hope it'll last a little longer. It's mid-October. I should say the year is still young. A lot can happen between now and the end of the year, even though the end of the year is kind of like a random endpoint anyways, but it's like the customary point to um, to have a look at at the bottom line. But so far, it's looking good. Maybe if you're interested, some of the things that I have been trading or, you know, recent entries and recent exits and, and these type of things. Yeah. I was going to actually go a little bit different uh, today. We okay. can go into some of that as well. But I was going to ask you, just because I know we've talked about it in the past and we, you, you've obviously uh, kind of diversified your portfolio quite a lot in the last few years, so I wanted to ask you, because you're having such a great year, just out of curiosity, you know, how much of that would you say contributes to the classical trend-following part of the portfolio and how much contributes from the new kind of, let's call it, spread trading part mm-hmm. of the portfolio? Yeah, good question. Um, out of 35%, about 25% is pure classic trend-following uh, the way you know I trade it. And about nine to ten percent is uh, from the spread uh, trading systems, and so those those spreads I really like them. Um, I want to be careful here because 
my life track record with those is now a bit more than one year. So I don't want to come across as uh, sounding like uh, this is this is the holy grail. I, I, I do not know that. I have a good time with them. I develop more confidence in, in the way they work. Uh, I see them working. They do what I want them to do. Uh, I like them what they do in the way they do it. They are trend following type of spreads. So that is uh, the mantra here. And so to give you some examples, out of the 9 to 10% PL that I made from these spreads, about 7% of that, so that's about 70% of the overall spread performance, stems from calendar spreads. So this could be a short or long-sided calendar spread, whereby a short-sided spread is where you short the front month contract and you are long further out the curve and the other way around. Um, now, I do get onto different parts of the curve. So sometimes I'm, say, uh, short the fifth expiration month of crude oil and I'm long the 10th. And sometimes I'm, you know, long the second and short the third. It, it changes depending on market price action. And to give you some examples of those bull spreads where I have been long at the front and short at the back, and, and luckily those have worked really, really well, is, is Henry Hub Natural Gas. I mean, this thing has just been moving higher on flat price basis. So the front month going higher and, and being, you know, long the spread has been uh, really nice there too. Uh, it has also worked uh, phenomenally well in cotton. And the opposite, where I was making money with bear spreads, so being short at the front and long further out on the curve was really good, for instance, in live cattle and soybeans. And so with soybeans, it's really nice because, you know, I had a long directional soybeans position for a long time. That has worked really well with my trend following program. It's actually a position that I recently exited uh, because the soybeans, you know, kind of like plateaued and, and didn't move higher. So there was a little bit of give back in terms of p &L. It doesn't really matter, but it was really nicely compensated by that spread system, which just kept going in, in the soybeans markets. So, so that was nice. And then I have about, you know, two to three percent coming from what I call cross market spreads and product spreads. So a cross market spread could be something like corn versus Kansas wheat. Um, that was, that was nice. And a product spread could be something like a cross spread where. I'm trading soybeans uh, short, for instance, against bean oil long and these type of things. So I really like the diversification that I get from that spread system. And I like it that it gets me onto different points of the futures curve. And I get a lot of diversification from it and luckily also some good PL. Yeah, you can certainly say that you're spreading your risk, um, pardon the pond here. Now, um, just going down again with some of these questions that um, is nice to uh, to be able to dive into a little bit, I think, is when you look at your portfolio overall, um, what's been kind of the standout market, meaning the year-to-date kind of winner and maybe the year-to-date losers that you've seen uh, so far, whether it's, you know, I guess classical trend is could be one section. I mean, the, really the, the big, big winners for me still, I mean, Bitcoin, and then the entire energies complex, especially gas, Henry Hub included, but I mean, first and foremost, TTF, which is Dutch gas, and then there's UK gas, which has the ticker FN. Those markets, I mean, they, they went parabolic. They're, they maybe even still are in that pa parabolic state. Uh, there's a real concern of an energy crisis, especially a gas and power crisis uh, 
going on here in Europe, especially in the UK now, by the way. And those markets have been moving phenomenally higher, um, making me a lot of money. Now, this, this also means that there's now a lot of give-back potential. Um, I wouldn't say there's a lot of risk, it's just give-back potential. Those trades will be, they will be winners unless they get down to zero, but uh, really nice trades. Lumber is, is fantastic for me. I wrote it up long, I wrote it down short, and uh, I'm now about to get long again. But uh, let's see, it's very close. And cotton has been a very nice market for me as well. Yeah, cotton has been doing pretty well. And in terms of, you mentioned it yourself, if you were going to sort of dissect the performance further down and just say, in terms of, of crypto mm -hmm. markets, I don't know if you trade, I guess you trade both Ethereum and, and Bitcoin in your portfolio. How much of the PL comes from crypto and how much comes from these quote-unquote other alternative markets that you've uh, successfully embraced compared to maybe more classical trend followers like uh, the firm that I work for, so to speak? Yeah, I stopped calling them alternative. I think I never called them alternative. They, they are an alternative to me. It's just a market or a product, maybe some of those markets are newer than... Yeah, let's call them newer, that's fair. Exactly, they're, they're just newer markets than other markets. Look, I think crypto is probably, I, I don't have the numbers here in front of me, but um, it's probably 4 to 5% around that level yeah. that, that I made from them uh, in the trend-following portfolio. And hey, look, uh, on, on uh, Tuesday, it seems there's a good chance that the ProShares Bitcoin Strategies ETF will finally get launched in the United States. Yeah. There was a deadline, I think, yesterday on Friday from the SEC, but the, the, they, they didn't raise their hands and stopped it. So the Bitcoin and the crypto markets are reacting to that, I think. They are going higher as we speak. We're between 61 and 62,000 um, in, in Bitcoin right now, and we're, th we're probably around 3,900 or even a bit higher in Ethereum. So let's see where that goes. It's, it's, it's nice to be a trend-following trader on these markets. Um, absolutely no idea where they will go. At the conference about 10 days ago in London, which was a crypto conference, I was moderating a panel there, of course. I mean, there's people there. They all think Ethereum is soon going to be between 20 and 40K and Bitcoin needs to go higher than 500K. That's all fine with me, but I don't have that price target. I'll just see what happens. Yeah, no, absolutely. And would you say that the newer markets accounts for the same amount of your PL this year or, or more? And the reason I ask is just to give people the impression or not the impression, but a little bit of insight, because I actually think that this year, 2021, will be historic in some ways, because I think that the return dispersion among managers is quite large compared to mm -hmm. what I've normally seen. And I actually think that we can more or less determine that that is depending on um, mostly what markets people trade in their portfolio. And as you know, there are some managers who have embraced the full gamut, uh, like yourself, but also of the multi-billion dollar managers who you know, trade China's uh, China futures to trade crypto and 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 all the European uh, markets that you mentioned, and then there are the classical trend followers where certainly I would say Don fits into that category where we kind of stay with the same markets we've been trading for years. So I'm interested in in just helping people understand how uh, you know how some of the things we talk about. You know, um, when you hunt for outliers, uh, sometimes it, you can certainly get the benefit from that by embracing more markets for sure. 
Yeah, the, the more markets you have in the portfolio, the greater your chance of um, getting on onto one of these rocket ships and, and having that outlier experience. And of course, I mean, as I've mentioned, I've mentioned the biggest winners in my portfolio thus far have been Bitcoin and the gas markets um, and lumber. I mean, lumber is not exactly a new market, but no, everybody trades lumber because market, of liquidity yeah. concerns. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But But I can trade lumber. So lumber was good for me. I trade power, right? If you trade Felix or Spanish gas or, or, or Spanish power, Italian power, uh, these type of markets, I mean, yeah, if, if you have them in your portfolio this year, it was very difficult to lose money. It's impossible to lose money if you use the classic trend following system on these markets. Yeah. This may be very different, mind you, next year. You know, maybe next year, it could, could be a year where if you only had the, the, the classic or traditional type of CTA markets in your portfolio, treasuries and some of the more liquid commodities and, and, and currencies, maybe that will do better then. But yeah, in terms of statistically speaking, you want to have all these markets in your portfolio if, if your capital allows to do that. Yeah. And as you said, there's obviously a lot of open profit at the moment. At some point, there will be some give back and and you could say maybe the difference will come back a little bit, but you're right. I mean, it's mm -hmm. certainly impossible not to make money from trends like this. Now, are all of these uh, markets that you have put in, are they all futures, actually? I, I don't even know that the answer to some of these markets. Are they all futures-based nowadays? Or? Yeah, TTF, Dutch Gas, is a, uh, is a futures contract. Uh, it, it trades on ICE Index. UK Gas is a futures contract. Uh, German Power Felix is a futures contract. Yeah. You can have a chat with your clearing broker and see if they support clearing on these exchanges. Most of that stuff is really on, on, on ice in terms of energies and power these days here in Europe. And most of the clearing brokers are members of the ice one way or another. So yeah. they are sometimes relatively big contracts. Uh, for instance, power is a relatively large contract. And then for... I can only think some historical comparison reason to Henry Hub Natural Gas. The the minimum lot size that you need to trade on UK Gas and TTF is five lots. So you can only trade it in five lot increments. And that makes it relatively large, larger, larger, of course, right now with, with current prices, substantially larger than Henry Hub, uh, which is a 1,000, sorry, 10,000 multiplier. So, but yeah, be be mindful about that. But other than that, it's it's tradable. Okay, great. I mean, this this was very useful, very interesting uh, insight to to your portfolios and to some of the markets that I don't track so closely. On our side, Q4 had a strong. We didn't talk much about it last week because of the turtle quiz we did with Jerry. But um, you know, we had a strong start to Q4 um, the previous week, and this week it continued. So overall, Q4. And October looks very nice. Once again, it's been led by energy, um, but also equities did well this uh, this week, of course. If we break down the fixed income sector in short-term contracts and long-term contracts, we see strong performance in the short-term interest rate contracts, whilst the longer bonds were uh, pretty quiet, actually, this week. We also had a good week in uh, Dr. Copper, so to speak. That was by far the best performing metals market that we trade. Gold and silver were pretty flat. Currencies had a positive week, while some of the classical commodity sectors like soft grains and meats, they were actually a little bit down for us this week. But uh, overall, a strong week for our trend following portfolios. And in terms of my trend barometer, 
it uh, continues to be in a in a good spot. It finished the week at 50, which is a positive reading. Um, so it kind of confirms, I think, what's going on performance-wise in the trend-following space. On the volatility side, on the other hand, it has been, uh, you know, there was a sluggish start to the S&P, but it turned out to be a pretty strong week at the close of business um, yesterday. It was an unusual week for U.S. equity implied volatility as the VIX index only declined about 2.7 points despite a strong up week for the uh, S&P. And also, as mentioned in previous weeks, the reaction of implied volatility to equity market declines, it's remained rather subdued recently and the first few days of this week also followed more or less the same pattern. And then we did see also a... Um, that the VIX term structure steepened quite significantly during the week. Uh, most of that action actually happened uh, Friday and uh, probably due to the approach and expiry of the October VIX futures. But overall, actually, it was a completely flat week for our volatility strategy and, and actually the month as a whole is pretty flat. For my trend-following portfolio, I wish I could say I was up as much as, as, as Moritz this year. I'm not quite, but uh, this week at least was a positive week. Month to date, October up 809, so 8.09%. Uh, 8 and for the year to date, it's up 12.59%. Performance coming from all three groups, but most of the performance really coming from the long biased group two models. They were up 6.39% for the month. Group one, 1.66%. And group three is pretty flat. Sectors uh, that are doing the best is energy, space metals, and bonds. And the worst sectors uh, are equities, precious metals, and meats. And the markets, if we drill down to that, that are doing best so far this month is zinc in the lead, followed by aluminum, so base metals. And then we have the RBOP gasoline contract in third place. At the bottom, we find uh, the DAX, which has been whipped around in some of the faster reacting models, and then the Nikkei and gold. In terms of the activity this week, started off with some uh, profit taking on a couple of long cotton positions actually and also trying to go short Euribor and then on Tuesday uh, the model got short euro dollar so the the short term interest rate contract in the US it bought some coffee and it covered a short Nikkei position Wednesday it flipped a short copper into a long copper position Thursday was the most active week, uh, day in the week due to this massive surge in equity. So a lot of the short-term models had to flip their DAX positions from short to long. And also other markets that got triggered with copper, boons, gold, Euribor, SMI, Canadian dollar and short sterling. So a pretty active day for, for this kind of model. And then Friday was pretty quiet, long entry in Canadian dollar and one more in copper. And for those of you who follow the risk to stop or the riskiness of the portfolio, that uh, increased to 15.03% up from 12.98 the week before. But as Jerry has pointed out uh, in a recent conversation, it's uh, perfectly natural for the risk to increase as performance increase as well. Now, we, uh, we did have a couple of questions in this week uh, that we need to attend to from Robert and Frederick, but they are mostly related to trading equities. So I think I'm going to leave those until Jerry or Rob returns because they are more active in these markets than uh, Moritz and I. But speaking about questions, I think you know, Moritz, by the way, that uh, Jerry, he had to retake his turtle entrance exam last week, and he did pretty well, I have to say. 
he uh, only missed six of the 63 questions. And when I say missed, I'm not sure even if he answered them wrongly, but it's just different to what the system has as, a, as the quote-unquote right answer. But it doesn't really matter. What was interesting, uh, and some people I think on Twitter said, oh, let's have Moritz take the test. But I, I don't want to really do the same kind of thing that uh, we did last week. I want to do something new all the time. But I uh, I very kindly got a little bit of insight uh, from Andrew, who uh, who has this uh, quiz on, on his website, as to what are the 10 questions that people struggle with the most. So I thought we could discuss those and see why we think that might be uh, actually a difficult question. So I'm going to uh, read them out in terms of the most difficult question or the question that people get the, uh, wrong the most first. And so the first question that um, only 24% get right is uh, question number 26. And it is it says, it takes money to make money. True or false, do you think? Yeah, well, let me start. I'll give you an answer on that one. But start. about two years ago, uh, I had a look at Andrew's website. And that was probably the first time I looked at his website. And I saw this exam there, the turtle questions, which I had never seen before. And I was excited like a like a kid in a candy store. I, I, I dropped everything. My coffee got cold. And, and I, just, I just wanted to do that test. And I think I was somewhere in the 90% or so type of thing. And the website gave me back a something like a, a percentile score or something like that. So I was really proud of myself that I that I aced that thing. But then I thought, well, it's probably because I listen to clever people like yourself and Jerry and, and others all the time that it was uh, probably a little bit easier for me to take. Um, but it's cool that it exists. Um, really nice questions there. Some of them, I think, are a little bit of a trick question. I think so too, uh, and, yeah. Uh, you really are. have to read them twice and, and make sure that you read the thing after the comma so that you don't give a premature answer. But does it take money to make money? If you have zero money, it's going to be very difficult slash impossible to make money. You cannot enter the casino without any chips. So I think it's clear to me that you need to have some money in order to make money. Yeah. Now, how much do you need is the question. Is it an excuse to not start trading if you have, say, $50,000. Look, I mean, you could arguably say, yeah, I go back into my corner, I, I have $50,000, I, I cannot do this, this is not enough money. But there are so many examples, maybe based on the selection bias when you, when you read the Market Wizard books, um, of people that had, like, back then, $25,000 or $8,000. I mean, these stories exist, right? And they, they made millions out of that money. Maybe they have been lucky to an extent. Uh, lucky at a early path in their career, at an early point in time, and it could have blown up, but maybe not. I think if you really love trading, if this is what you want to do, if you're in the game to make money, which is why I do it, I mean, I, I, I love it, but I also want to make money doing it, then you need to get started regardless of the amount of money you have. Even with smaller amounts, you need to get started in order to get that experience under your belt in order to get out of the paper trading environment, in order to get out of the hypothetical, or if that, then that could have been, and this, I would do that if I only had this much more money. Well, I don't think you'll get to the, 
to your, to the finish line with that type of attitude. So start trading, obviously appropriately sized given your account size. You do not want to blow up right away. So you cannot trade the big futures contracts and these type of things. But there are now mini and micro contracts on actually many markets, I think. Uh, you can size the stocks in a very granular way. You can do FX with interactive brokers in, in smaller sizes. So yeah, you, you can do it. It's not necessarily the most efficient way then in terms of transaction costs, etc. But if you have a good trading system, you can get started. And I think you should. Yeah. And, and you know what? I think with a question like this, I think it is a little bit of a trick question, frankly. And I think it really depends on how we initially think of the question. Meaning, you could also say, well, if, if you're a futures trader, you need to put up margin. So, yeah, you could argue, yeah, it takes money to make money. But actually, as far as I can tell, the test wants an answer of false. So not kind of what, what we were talking about just now. But we don't know why. Well, exactly. We, we're not entirely sure what the what, what, what Richard Richard Dennis thought back in the day in terms of, of why he would ask that. It's kind of also a little bit of a philosophical question. But as far as I can tell, and also based on what Jerry answered last week and then what I got back in terms of what he had gotten wrong, I think he got this one right. And uh, anyways, just to, to let you know, the, the or, or everyone know that they, um, the, the system wants or the, the, the test wants us to say false. Okay, so let's move on to another question that's tricky for people. Only 31% gets this one right. It's question number 32. After a big profit, the next trend-following trade is more likely to be a loss. <laughs> uh, I have to say, I have to say, Moritz, I actually don't know what the answer is here because I couldn't find, I didn't have time to dig deep enough to figure out what Jerry had answered and to work out whether then that was one of the correct ones or not. But, well, but it's one of the questions that people really get wrong as well. <laughs> Is the answer I don't know allowed? I uh, <laughs> look. I, I didn't listen to, uh, unfortunately, not yet to your episode with Jerry. I, I definitely need to to listen him answering these questions. So I my hunch is that this could actually be true. Um, and I also remember from I think it was one of the Covell books or uh, um, there's this other book, uh, Way of the Turtle, uh, something like that, when, when, when I read about the turtle rules, I think they actually had something in their systems where they said if, if, if they had um, that is profitable, correct, yeah. yeah, something like that. I don't know the exact rule, but it rings a bell. So, okay, so that may be true. Uh, I still would not do it. I don't want to even get down that rabbit hole figuring out a pattern between a sequence of profitable trades and then to not trade trade number four or trade number five or size that differently. They would probably get me A, into sample size issues, and B, if that caused me to miss the rocket ship, I'd be really mad. So I think I'm now at a stage where I completely accept it, that I probably need to take these losing trades on the chin, move on, love them in the same way that I love my winning trades, and, and, and not be too smart about any sequential patterns of profits and losses. 
Yeah, I agree with that completely. And um, I do uh, also agree with you that there is or there was in the turtle original turtle rule something about if you had a big winner, you don't take the next trade. And I don't want to speak for Jerry, but I, I thought he said last week something about that he might actually have something still lurking in his system to that effect. But again, that's just my recollection of it. But in any event, I agree with you that just because you have a large winner doesn't mean the next trade can't be a winner. And one of the cardinal rules is to make sure you get on whatever outlier trade that we find. And I guess in in your world, so to speak, this year would have been a, an interesting example, right? Because we've had a couple of, and I don't know if there were some trades in between, but I, I would imagine both the, the crypto side, but also things like Lumber had some pretty big moves sequentially. There was no fiddling around they just kind of either went straight up or straight down and now back up again yeah um, of course i think you can find these markets maybe cocoa is uh is one of those markets this year where something like that well cocoa hasn't made money for 15 years yeah so exactly right so, so, if you, if you, if so you, in that sense i would say avoid all trades uh yeah, not exactly. just <laughs> so if you skipped every fourth trade you'll probably be better by 25 percent. but yeah look it is i i just don't do it and so I'm not sure if there's if that question is answerable no, for me. But and that's fine. I mean again, let's move on. It's just a, a fun fact just to look at what what are the questions that people struggle with the most. So the third one that they struggle with, this comes in at 32% getting it right only and that is uh, question 37. Trading stocks is similar to trading commodities. I know the answer to this one, but I, I'm happy to hear your your best guess so from a trend following perspective my answer to that question needs to be 100% yes from a say if the question were framed such as is it technically the same in terms of margining and cash outlay and these type of things well then obviously not because one is a security and the other one is a futures contract i.e a derivative but i think the question is meant that interview question was probably meant in, in the context of would you trade them differently in terms of would you apply different rules, entry rules, exit rules, stops, ATR, trading stops, these type of things. And there I would say, well, absolutely not. And I would just uh, view them as a product, an element of my trading system. And they're all treated the same in the same way that I treat my children the same. I don't care if it's a stock and equity index or a commodity. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the answer is true for sure. Question 57, um, only 38% get this one right. The question is, volume and open interest are as important as price action? Oh, that one, I think, is going to be super easy for me. The answer is no. Correct. I, I agree with that, yeah. And so I look at price. Price is, it, everything crystallizes in that price. In the settlement price, in the closing price, in an open high-low close. That's the information that I rely on. That's the information that I need. And then I do calculations off of that um, price and, and ranges and these type of things. But volume and open interest, I look at that when I make my market selections. I look at that when I make my contract expiration selections. So for instance, you will find the January or February contract, I don't know, off the top of my head in the silver market. One of them is a liquid, but it trades, right? So you go, okay, skip that one. Don't, don't roll into the liquid month. So I look, I look into volume and open interest every time I engage in the market. And I also review that 
at the end of the year when I kind of like have a, a program system type of maintenance where after Christmas, I take some time and kind of like go through all the markets again. I looked at, you know, how they traded, how my system worked on them, what I did, number of trades. And, and, and then I would spot if volume had changed or liquidity had changed. I look at order book information. So I, I, I do maintenance and, and research. I look at it. But the, the daily volume and the daily open interest number, they're not a parameter. They're not, they're not an input to my trading system. Yeah, no, I absolutely completely agree. Question number 18, 41% gets this one right. Um, a trader should be willing to let profits run into losses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. <laughs> Another day in the office. Well, tell me about it, right? I mean, it's uh, just, I just mentioned uh, TTF, natural gas. A, a week ago, that thing was uh, was going ballistic. And then Vladimir Putin said, oh, you you know, we could send you some more gas. And, you know, he's kind of like, yeah. <laughs> you know how it is. It's politics, right? And, and, and so, boom, the thing, the thing went down. Um, and it had another down day yesterday on Friday. Oh, yes. So in order to get onto that ballistic rocket ship, I need to be able to take the other side of that coin, which is it will move against me. Uh, there will be give back. And I need to be steadfast until my exit is hit. Indeed. Question number seven is uh, one that gets around 44, let me try that again, 44% true, not true, but correct answers. And the question is, it helps to have the fundamentals in your favor before you initiate. Uh, is there is there a maybe? Well, um, <laughs> I... But again, I think what I think before you answer, uh, because I think you, you, we should you should do what you did with all your other questions. You should just think about your own system, right? Yeah. And once you know that, then you know the okay. answer. So yeah. uh, then the answer is no. Yeah, I do not really care about the fundamentals, and even though I don't have the time, I think nobody really has the time to check on whether. I mean, what is fundamentals anyway? That that is something different to everybody you ask, and I never really checked on um like i just got long let me see recent entries short canada bank bills long odes short three-year korean bonds short i mean what are the fundamentals i really don't know i don't have the time to research and if anything i sometimes have i'm, I'm I have the suspicion that i sometimes enter trades which and then the next day i read something in the newspaper or uh, online in, in the wall street journal that would make me think well I should have taken the other side of that trade. Funny that I got long <laughs> and still my trade works. So it's probably better to fade those news, uh, disregard them even. And so they, they don't play a role for me. No, indeed. The next one is uh, has a 45% uh, correctness in the, in the test. And it's question number 35. It's better to be an expert in one or two markets rather than try to trade 10 or more markets. That is absolutely wrong. I'm pretty sure traders exist in maybe some niche commodities where, um, where, where they take such a deep dive and they have information about, I don't know, the loadings and barges being loaded with corn and these type of things where they really don't have the time to look at anything else and they're really specialist corn traders. And maybe they get an alpha that way. 
but that's not me. And and I I don't really need to be a specialist in any of these markets. I need to be a specialist in pulling in price data and and, and programming a system, and being a specialist uh, in being emotionally stable and and following that system. That that is my speciality. And then if a new market, let's call them new markets, not alternative markets, if a new market comes to the table, then I can already be a specialist in that market too because I know how to pull it into my system, into the database, and run my system on it. So no. I don't think you need to have special underlying knowledge in any of these. No, and the answer is, of course, as you rightly said, it's a false answer. So we got three more left. So question number 52, 45% gets this one correct. Um, and the question is, it's important to know what success in trading will do for you later in life. Actually, you know, obviously a pretty philosophical question in some ways. Okay, let me, it's important for me to know what trading success will do to my life down the road. I wouldn't know why. Um, so I would answer no, but I cannot give you... No, there's no necessarily reason for it. But I think you're right in saying it's a false answer there, as far as I can work out. Let's quickly run through the last two. We can get into some of your topics. Question number eight, uh, now we're getting to the point where 50% of people get it correct. The question is, a gap up is a good place to initiate if an uptrend has started. Yes, it, it, it is. It is that uh, initially painful point where things have gapped up and, and you need to buy it now at higher prices. So, But it is still a good entry point if the market goes higher afterwards. So Strip yourself of that bad feeling that you are buying something at a high price. Your business is to get long and later on sell it at a higher price. And you cannot run the risk of, at least in a trend-following trading environment, systematically, you cannot run the risk of skipping that trade only because you're now paying one point more, a half a point more, or like three bit offer spreads more than you would have yesterday. Don't wait for that market to have a pullback or any of these ideas which people I'm sure have, just be prepared to pay the pharmacy price and the, and the expensive price because that expensive price today may be looking very cheap uh, three months down the road. So just, just do the trade. Yeah, absolutely. Final question. I think this is probably an easy one if you pay attention to the wording. And there's 52% who gets this correct when they answer it. And that is all speculators die broke. Uh, no. I mean... I hope I don't die broke. Yeah, and I think the um, giveaway is the word all. I, I, I know <laughs> I know a few who didn't die broke, so no. Answer is no. Yeah. All right, cool. Hopefully there was a you know a little another way of looking at the same quiz um which we had a lot of fun with last week. And I of course encourage any everyone who missed last week's episode to go and listen to Jerry take the test completely unprepared, having to dig deep into um how he did it all those years ago. Anyways, Mart, you brought along as well some kind of uh, topics um, that you wanted to uh, talk about. We've already touched a little bit upon it, and certainly I think it's very appropriate maybe to talk a little bit about it, given this thing about Bitcoin maybe becoming a, an ETF um, next week, as far as we can tell, uh, at least what, what I've read on Bloomberg as well. So so uh, whether that's just by the rumor, sell the facts, who kn who knows? But but you wanted to talk a little bit more about this, um, so um, take it away. 
Yeah, I mean, just only because of the, the recent uh, good performance. I mean, as you know, we had this uh, this high of $65,000 in Bitcoin, and we also had a substantial correction of more than 50% um, subsequent to that high. Um, and now we're approaching that old high again. So crypto markets, as everybody probably knows on that show, they are a volatile beast, i.e. you have to be careful when you trade them and size them appropriately. But I think they are, they're just phenomenal components of a portfolio, uh, Ether and Bitcoin. I think right now they are relatively highly correlated to one another, uh, which isn't so nice, but we don't know whether that's always going to be the case going forward. But there's other things that now become tradable, accessible, that you can trade in DeFi space, other types of tokens. It's just, I mean, to me personally, it is, an absolutely fascinating environment to see that digital future being built in front of our eyes and, and the metaverse and Web 3.0 and all these type of things. And as I mentioned to you, Niels, I was attending that crypto conference in London and usually the conferences that I go to, they're like financial conferences run by banks or the alternative investment industry. And, and, and you kind of like, you know, the people that go there and I would say something like the, the average age bracket there maybe a little bit to the younger side even. And then I go to this London conference uh, moderating a panel on crypto through a global macro lens. And I was really one of the grandpas at that conference at my age. <laughs> and so maybe there were five people older than me and everybody else was in their 20s and early 30s typing away in Python on their notebooks I just found that very fascinating to see that we have this generation growing up that is um, taking this opportunity by the horns, using their computer language and programming skills to build these blockchain-based uh, services and, and apps and DEXs and DAPs and all these things, uh, which I think are going to be a mainstay and, 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 and a central element of our future uh, way of life in, in the way that the internet became a mainstay. We're using it all the time. These things will also make an entry into our day-to-day -day lives. So I've got kind of two two questions uh, to those two points that you mentioned there. Uh, just again to, to the first one is maybe to give people listening a little bit of an insight to how your model reacted because I think a lot of people in the crypto space even people, I would let me rephrase that. I think even people within the crypto space got a little bit spooked back in, I can't remember, was it April, May, when suddenly it got halved in terms of price in a relatively short period of time. And obviously, after a few weeks of consolidation, started to move higher, broke out back into the 40,000 range. And now we're making our way back to the all time high, possibly. So, Talk me through a little bit how a system like yours handle that in terms of when it, I mean, ballpark numbers, of course, when it got out of your longs, because obviously you would have been long going into 2021, and how it dealt with, you know, did it get short at some point? Did it then have to re, you know, re uh, enter the long side? But also this, the follow-up question to that is, I'm curious to know whether you feel, and I don't know if you ever looked at this, that cryptos trade better for systems that are not too long in duration in terms of look back period. Now, I, I have an idea of what your look back period is, 
and I wouldn't call it as long as Jerry for sure, but I am interested in general whether you found that 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 your kind of look back period actually fit, fits crypto pretty well, maybe even compared to some other markets uh, that you trade. Yeah, that that may be true. I would need to really test that more thoroughly, to be honest. Um, but what I hear people talk about a lot, and, and and a couple of things I have run and tested together with um, my my business partner and friend Maritz from from Tuquans, what you can really see is that some of the let's call them in air quotes simple uh, trading systems, even based on technicals such as RSI and MACD and you know these type of things. They they no longer work essentially in the S and P five hundred or any other liquid large market because uh, it has like a gazillion eyeballs on it and and the computers would be doing these these trades uh, over and over again so that's completely arbitraged away. But in crypto, that thing kind of um, kind of still works or, or it seems to work. I, I I don't trade it, but from a backtest perspective, you can see it working. Now, you could then turn around on your heel and say, oh, well, let's not forget that we're looking at a massive bull market here where we have an, a market such as Bitcoin that on average has made 100% per year. So, uh, of course, you have to do a lot of things wrongly uh, to not make money if you're trading that from the long side, regardless of your system that you're using. So something will probably make money. Um, but yes, um, Right now, we are probably um, at an increasing um, um, phase of institutional adoption. If that ETF comes out in the United States, then that may actually accelerate that even further. Even though I think that the people that really wanted to get exposure to Bitcoin, they, they can have long ago done it, uh, even with uh, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust and Coinbase. I mean, you, you can get exposure to Bitcoin. You, you don't need to wait for the ETF. But... I think some investors, institutional investors, are waiting for the ETF because it gives them that protected security. Um, and so maybe maybe these simpler type of systems will lose their efficiency and effectiveness when more money comes in. And in years prior, it's been uh, the retail traders and maybe some, um, you know, uh, students trading it from their dorm rooms and, and, and making money that way. So... What's also interesting, I think, about crypto is that it doesn't have any circuit breakers. It, 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 is, it is, in a way, a very brutal market. It trades 24-7, 365 days in a year, and it just doesn't stop. Now, you could say, okay, corn also trades 365 days a year, and it never stops. The only difference is you don't see a price on Saturday and Sunday. You have to wait for it to show up again on Monday, but... It, it does have a hidden price on Sunday and also on Saturday. But with Bitcoin, that thing is there all the time. And, and, and if and when it goes down, there's no limit up, there's no limit down, there's no volatility, circuit breaking, none of that stuff. I mean, it, it just, uh, if it goes down, it goes down. It flash crashes 10,000 points in five minutes. And um, that's just remarkable sure. and painful maybe sometimes too. But, but it does do that. Yeah. Then the other thing I wanted to follow up on um, when you mentioned about the conference that you had moderated crypto through the global, through a global macro lens. I'm kind of curious. You mentioned that most of the participants were the, the 20s and the 30s. And I'm thinking, and that may not be for your panel, I don't know, but that's kind of where I'm going. Because to me, the people who 
I generally think have a really good idea of of the global macro picture of people who are a little bit, at least like I am, gray-haired and have been around for 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 a few decades. It's kind of hard for a twenty-year-old to have a, a a good grasp of the global macro picture because a lot of it is you kind of have to experience it, you know, to see that these things do happen. So, so I'm curious what what these people thought about crypto through a global macro lens, not just about obviously institutional adoption. I think that's something that we we see and we hear and, and and I agree it's it's probably inevitable that the more people will go towards that but what other kind of interesting things did you did you think came came of that kind of panel discussion yeah if, if I can summarize it into one thing I I mean of course they they are bullish people on a conference I mean they go to the conference because they have an exposure to crypto so they like crypto yeah. um period right so so you don't see people there that say bitcoin will go to zero even though i actually made that 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 line on the panel and said nobody should say that the probability of bitcoin going to zero is zero and the journalist from city am or something picked it up and put it on twitter quoted me on that i said well yeah that is true i mean you know sure. fa- it's, it's a fact it could go to zero maybe the probability is super super low but so the crowd there the people there they think it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And they compare it to, um, you know, the Visa and the MasterCard networks, and uh, they compare it to um, essentially all of finance, like there's trillions of money that's moved around in the world. I mean, everybody kind of like has their same benchmark. You have this narrative of digital gold, which I found interesting. I kind of like had that uh, engraved into kind of like my my head. It's like, oh yeah, uh, Bitcoin is a better form of gold probably because it's much easier to move around. It's uh, much more divisible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they kind of like said, well, that's that's almost like an insult. It is so much better than gold because when you look at gold, gold really is inflating at two, maybe 3% a year, depending on the gold price. Gold has not protected you against loss of purchasing power over the long run. So they kind of like say gold is really overrated. Everybody everybody points at gold and says gold should be our target gold should be the, the benchmark for bitcoin and, and 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 then bitcoin needs to trade at something like five hundred and fifty thousand per coin so that, that's that's an insult it, it, it needs to go much much higher so they're really they're really bullish yeah i mean this is some of the i mean again i'm 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 neither for or against uh bitcoin and crypto i think it's here it's here to stay but but i do sometimes think why do they even compare it to gold? I mean, Bitcoin has what twelve years of history, thirteen years of history. You can't really say, you can't say at all whether it has any real links to inflation. I mean, in fact, we haven't really had inflation for all the years crypto has you know been around. So I think it's just a crazy analogy and discussion to yeah, it's, to it's talk just... about these things. It's the store of value argument, right? I mean, people go into gold because they lose trust in their fiat currency and they're concerned about inflation and they use st- gold as a storehold of wealth. And and you use it as a storehold of wealth because you know that you cannot print it. Uh, you, need, you need to spend energy and hard labor in order to get it out of the ground and refine it and, and, and get bullion. So in, in a way that applies to Bitcoin, um, even with the exception here in Bitcoin, it's all programmable. It's all mathematically defined what is going to happen. 
So there is, I think, some overlap there, but of course many differences. It's just one of the things I believe um, was produced as a, as a comparison because it's very palatable uh, to an institutional investor or to investors in general because many of them have exposure to gold. And if you can convince them that this is a better form of gold, that can live in the digital age and is um, peer-to-peer transferable um, in, in almost no time instantaneously on um, something like the Lightning Network, really, at very low cost, um, then obviously that sounds sounds very good. Um, so it's 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 easier, I think, to open the door that way and and get people to buy in than to explain to them the mechanics of uh, how one block is put to another and how you need to find a nonce value. And a lot of people get, get lost in the technicalities there. And then, and then they don't want to go further, right? Because they feel overwhelmed and they feel that that is something that they could never understand. So then it's kind of like, hands off, I'm not going there. So the digital goal thing has worked, I guess. Uh, whether that's the right benchmark, I don't know. Maybe it has no benchmark. Maybe Bitcoin is just Bitcoin. Maybe that is an asset class in and by itself. It's going to be a crypto digital asset type of asset class in the same way that equities are an asset class. I mean, you could certainly argue, I think, that since you come up with something that has never existed before, you could certainly argue that maybe it doesn't have a benchmark because there's nothing to compare it to. So to pick something that's been around for, you know, tens of thousands of years or whatever, like gold, maybe it's a little bit uh, of a bad comparison. But anyways, interesting stuff, and I'm sure we will be following this uh, quite closely and it will of course be from a just from a pure trading point of view it will be very very interesting to see if we get breakouts to new high because uh, that might trigger some even some long-term trend following systems to uh, having to get back into it uh, if they are not already because actually the sell-off hasn't lasted that long in terms of look back period it hasn't been that long so uh, so some systems, if they're long enough, might actually only get triggered if we get to a new high at this point in time. There are a couple of other things you... Um, I don't know whether you want to talk about it or, or, or how you're feeling, uh, given your cold, but... I mean, I and I, I know this is not strictly related to ESG, um, but there are, there were some things you talked about in terms of climate impact as well. I I I did notice the. I mean, you guys participated in in the latest Nordic Hedge Hedge uh, CTA uh, article. Rich and I had also contributed with an article um, for that mag- for that uh, issue, which was a great issue, by the way. Uh, so kudos to Cameron and his crew up there. Um, and then also there are a lot of other uh, big managers uh, who contributed with some interesting uh, articles around CTAs and, and all of that. Um, so, um, so yeah, if, if there's anything you want to go to uh, in, in, in the last few minutes we have, uh, feel free. Yeah, maybe, maybe just, I mean, in general, I think we have this ongoing drive toward greener energy and a carbon-neutral global economy. And I think right. this is clearly well-intentioned. But what people forget easily today is that it is also having severe knock-on effects on traditional fossil fuel supply chains. It doesn't come without side effects. Somebody has to pick up the bill. 
it's by the, because you've mentioned the German elections, um, the Greens were doing really well in that election. You know, they're all in favor of green energies and renewable energies, and, and, and so am I. But I think it's a matter of fairness to also say that this is going to mean additional costs for everybody that you will pay at the pump, that you will pay when you charge your iPhone in your socket, et cetera, et cetera. When you, when you say it as clearly to people as I just do, then maybe the Greens will get less of a vote. Um, so they were relatively quiet about that. And what you also see is that there's currently very little appetite for capital to be directed towards the air quote, dirty energy, coal, for instance, right? And, and, and all the other fossil fuels. But this is really hampering some of the supply chains, as we can now see in gas, during a period where the global economy is really growing again post-COVID. And so it's just a reality that I think it will take as many, many years before these cleaner forms of energy can make a more significant contribution uh, to our needs uh, than people think. And, and it's probably decades. And until then, we'll have more volatility in energy prices if we're starving the traditional energy companies of money. Um, I think it's really a wrong thing to do to immediately um, stop giving money to these companies that have attachments to the fossil fuel industry. I think that is a far high to price, price to pay. So, and, and this is, I think people mix that up now with ESG, which, um, you know, my company is really all about ESG. It's all about climate and sustainability. I mean, Munich Re is directly impacted, very directly impacted by climate change on, on the reinsurance business. I'm not in their reinsurance business, but I, I, I know it hurts them. Um, but then people think about ESG in these wonderful terms and uh, everything needs to be ESG now. And they don't consider the consequences of that. And then it gets greenwashed and they believe that only because they filtered a stock portfolio based on a ESG score, pick a random provider, it could be MSCI, it could be any of these other firms that sell you that data for a ton of money, that you are doing something good for the world. And I think that is just obviously false. It's, it's completely false. And it's kind of like sand in investors' eyes. They, they get this feel-good feeling for double the management fee now on that ESG fund. But really, nothing changes. But you can find ways to actually have an impact. Obviously, if, if you provide financing to the build-out of a, of a hydro plant or a solar farm or something like that, it's, it's very clear that that will do something good for the world, right? It will accelerate our path towards uh, greener energies, but also CTAs. And that is what I think we put in this Hitch Nordic article is um, um, CTAs, I think, that the way we, we really need to trade in our trend-following trading style, long and short, all the markets, as many markets as possible, it's very difficult for us to adhere to the very strict ESG norms that some of the other firms give themselves. You know, you still want to be able to trade long gas. I am long gas and I made a lot of money being long gas. Some purist ESG firm may say, well, I can no longer touch the gas market because the gas market is, is, is bad. It's, it's a dirty market. So um, I, I don't think that I, well, I, I know I don't want to run a CTA system where I need to strip all of these energy commodities, all of the agricultural commodities and, and you know, all of these things off of my portfolio. 
because I know it will, it will be um, disadvantageous to my portfolio expectations. So CTAs, I think they use the ESG thing in a different way, saying that we as a management company adhere to um, sustainable principles and we don't take the aircraft to every meeting. Um, we take the train and sometimes we take the bike to work and these type of things. Okay, that's all very nice. But um, what one thing you can do in your portfolio that is actually having a very direct positive impact on climate and and earns you a yield is a cash and carry trade in the European emissions markets. We have the largest emissions market, compliance emissions market in the world where we're trading pollution rights. This is billions, billions in liquidity. And I know I, I trade it in my trend following portfolio. I'm long. I think Jerry trades it. I'm not sure if you trade it, Niels. Uh, it's a futures contract, but there's also a spot market out there. And you can do a, you know, the stone old cash and carry trade, which you guys all know from the commodity markets, for instance, in crude oil, right, where you have floating storage and these type of things. And, and buy the spot and sell the futures and you make about 100 basis points, positive absolute yields in the eurozone. And mind you, we have negative yields here. So this is, say, 120, 130, 140 basis points over what you would earn with uh, shots or something like that, that you would normally sit on. And it's even better if you compare that to cash when it sits on your clearing broker or custodian bank where you have full bank risk and they charge you a spread on that as well. So, so you can do that. You have a, a better return and your counterpart, your risk profile, I think is also pretty good because it's the European Commission, essentially. They run those registry accounts in the compliance markets here. So yeah, Europe is your counterparty. And on the future Slack, it's, it's ICE as a clearinghouse. And, and so here's the impact story. If you hold this spot pollution certificate, then the beauty is that there is a market stability reserve that operates in that market. And that is fully rules-based. You can read it up, you can Google it, Google the market stability reserve. It comes up with a formula. Everybody can read that formula and, and understand how that works. So um, the way that works, in, in just very briefly, is they look at the total number of allowances in circulation every year. So the stuff that's out there, if that is above a certain threshold, then 24% of the auction volume in the subsequent year, in the following year, will be cancelled, which means um, pollution rights don't come into existence. Somebody can therefore not pollute. And that means you have a, impact, a positive impact on climate because you're preventing pollution to happen in the first place. Point one. And point two, because you are now holding that certificate today, and you don't give it to a utility or a um, cement producer or any other firm that, that is required to have it by law, uh, you're essentially incentivizing them to make a faster transition toward the green energy world. Because by you holding it, you make it more expensive to pollute. And the more expensive you make it, the more competitive your international competitors get. And the more of an urge you have um, to move quickly and stay competitive and, and use renewable energies to really make your business work. So that I think is something where the CTAs could show to their investors, look, we, we go to the, we cycle to work, we take the train um, and with our excess cash, we're not only producing a better yield than shots or T-bills, but we're also showing you a demonstrable positive impact on climate. And it's not made up like an ESG filter on stocks you can actually show it because it's a formula. 
Yeah, I mean it, it's it's very interesting. I have certainly some views on on ESG uh, and 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 relation to our industry, and we we certainly don't need to uh, go into that uh, right now. But I do have a question for you. I don't know if you know this. So emissions contracts. I mean, to me, they're quite interesting. Um, but usually, I'm always skeptic if it's something that the EU is involved in, uh, just from uh, experience. Mm-hmm. So all the money that people have to pay for these rights. What happens to those money? It goes to the government coffers. Um, so it's a big source of revenue for the governments. They get that money. They're supposed to use it for the built-out of renewable energies. Whether they actually do use it for that purpose uh, is written on a, another sheet of paper. But it, it's money that flows to the government. That's yeah. right. Now, what you rightly say is that it is a market where the European Union is involved in. Let's just call that it's a political market. It's a market that is impacted by current and future politics and that makes it different i would say to other markets such as for instance natural gas or corn or soybeans where you have these like i mean these contracts trade since years and years and years decades on exchanges and it's very clear what their purpose is and how they work um there's less of a risk that a politician will come in and um and hurt the corn market in the US. Um, Maybe, but I think there's less of a risk. But here in Europe, oh yes. Um, I mean, you've heard it the week before before this, when European gas prices went parabolic. Um, Of course, you have um, some countries here in the European Union that raise their hand and say that is all because of the emissions markets and the emissions are so expensive. And and therefore the utilities don't work, and 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 the average man and woman needs to pay the price at the pump or at their socket. Um, and 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 then they're saying you need to increase the number of permits, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So th- there is a higher risk, depending on the government that runs the show, that they will at some point intervene or change the market, change its rules, change the supply dynamics. I don't know. Nobody knows. But yeah, it's it's a political market, that's for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. And I also take your point about, and, and this is certainly a discussion that, uh, you know, I happen to be in, in Denmark this week. So I I follow a little bit what goes, goes going on here. And as, as a lot of people know, Denmark is certainly leading when it comes to uh, this transition into a greener world uh, without a doubt. But it does not change the fact that I think uh, I think you're absolutely right that this is being pushed forward without people being told what the real consequence is. Because I think if people said, you know, so the election we had a couple of years back in Denmark, it was all about, yeah, we need to get to 70% reduction in in uh, in in dirty energy, you know, by 2030. But it was never said that, oh, yeah, but by the way, you're going to pay 50% more for all your energy until we get to that point, for example. I mean, I'm just using a, uh, you know, a, a, a made-up figure here. But I think this is what people have forgotten, that that uh, because a lot of these uh, other energy sources have been closed down or underinvested in, um, this is a real risk that we run. Um, just because this summer there's been less rain in Norway, so there's been less uh, water and the wind hasn't blown as much as, as it apparently normally does then this is some of these bottlenecks that we've we've seen and pushes the prices up by hundreds of percent in some of these uh, in some of these energy contracts. Um, yep. 
So if we take away our trend following hat and which where we think, oh, this is great, that's a great trend, it's it obviously has some real negative impacts for a lot of people um when they see the the cost of of some essential uh, commodities they have to pay for 100 this morning i was filling up my car 60 liters of diesel um 110 euros right i mean this sounds this sounds crazy to somebody living in the united states when, when i live there i mean filling up the car with gasoline is yeah fine you know but it's now Super, so gasoline is about one euro seventy, one euro eighty per liter here in Germany, not per gallon, per liter. Yeah. Right? So it does have an impact. People do notice. They notice that their gas prices rise, their power prices rise, everything gets more expensive. It's like a rubber band, I think. Um, we, our politicians, the elected leaders need to become clearer about the consequences. They, they've kind of like put them under the carpet for now. But this is not the right thing to do, especially in a country like Germany, where we've made the decision to switch off all nukes. So well, we're that's going to be, kind of what I was referring to, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so France is going the other way. They are building more modern nuclear power plants, yeah. maybe even smaller, more decentralized power plants to have a more decentralized grid infrastructure. Uh, but we don't have that. So we're completely uh, dependent on... Um, well, to, not completely, but to a large extent, uh, to gas flows from Russia. And then we have that thing, oh, we're sitting in the middle there, right? I mean, the US also want to sell us some gas, uh, LNG tankers uh, coming into Rotterdam. So it's this political dimension that you have there. We're no longer supposed to touch coal and lignite and thermal coal and you know these type of things because they're super dirty. So you have gas and you have renewables. But the renewables, they're volatile. You know, they're intermittent. Um, they... <laughs> The wind blows or it doesn't blow, the sun shines or it doesn't shine. Um, so people have to get, and that's going to be interesting, people have to get used to that volatility. And as you know, volatility is not something that sits well with most people. Maybe you and I have a, a, a better way of dealing with that because we, we trade, but most people don't like volatility, especially not volatility that hits their wallet and, uh, and, and pocketbook as directly as energy does. Yeah. And I think also all in all, um, what this will 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 lead to, I think, is certainly a much higher risk of some some real inflation that we can all feel. And 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 just to put it back to a trend following perspective, there's been some interesting uh, research papers out in the last sort of six twelve months, just that just shows that generally speaking, trend following strategies do much better in inflationary and or high interest rate environments in general. So I think. In that sense, um, you know, these might have a, a knock-on effect that might actually work out um, to the advantage of people doing what we do from a trend-following point of view. But it's all interesting. I'm sure we'll come back to it. I, I wish I could share this interview with people, but unfortunately, you need to understand Danish in order to uh, to get anything of it. But I did hear a wonderful uh, interview yesterday in Danish on, um, with the CEO of the largest renewable energy company in Denmark called Ørsted and I think actually their market lead I think that they they're the most they have won all these prizes for ESG etc cetera, etc cetera, but they are by far the leading company right now in in that space and I have to say it's not a space I know a lot about but it was really fascinating to hear how they think about uh, these things uh, for sure anyways let's get back on the trend following um, track before we finish off today 
We are going to uh, look at the performance so far this month, and it looks pretty green to me, actually. Up 2.13% for the Beta 50 index, up 10.96%. And this is even without Friday, which was another good day for CTAs. SOCGEN CT index up 1.53% for the month of October, up 877 for uh, the year. SOCGEN trend index powering away up 1.78 for, uh, for the month, up 0.125 for the year. You know, this could be the best year for the trend following index if it continues like this, uh, perhaps in history, as far as I can tell. And the uh, Sokjin Short Term Traders Index up 73 basis points for the month, up 1.1% for the year. As I mentioned, trend following uh, my trend barometer, its uh, reading is 50, so it's good. Let's hope that continues. MSCI World still having a good month, though, up 3.42%, up 15.5% for the year. So, any final thoughts, uh, Moritz? Are we going to wrap it up? Wrap it up. That was good. Okay. So, on that note, we're going to leave this conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, as we always ask, please head over to iTunes. Leave a rating and review so more people can find the podcast and help make it easy. And to make it easier for you, um, you can actually just go to toptradersunplugcom forward slash review. And then that has all the information that you need. Next week, I'm joined by Mark. I know we have a special, another special theme coming up with him. Last time it was uh, about what investors look for in selecting a manager, a study that he had done. I think we're talking about another interesting topic, uh, a little bit different to what we normally do. Um, he's always got some interesting to do. So tune back next week for that. Send us a question uh, or two if you have them. Follow us on Twitter as you normally do. From Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.